You ever hear somebody cry out loudly? You ever heard of wailing over the loss of someone's life? Maybe you've seen a movie that moved you as you saw somebody that lost their child, that lost their spouse, a soldier that lost their fellow soldier next to them in battle. You see, the reality is many of us don't understand what this prophet's going through because we've never experienced it to that depth. We've looked at the first part of the first lament of Jeremiah where we see his utter grief over the state of this nation and particularly his city, Jerusalem. Jeremiah is looking at the situation, seeing how the prophecy of destruction was fulfilled and the enemies of Jerusalem now becoming her master. You see, Israel's idolatry was so blatant that they perverted it with mixing of syncretism. The blending of various religious beliefs into their worship of Jehovah. As we discussed last week, there are different approaches to, Christian, to, to Christendom in worship. And one of those things would be the exclusive stance, the inclusive, and the pluralistic. We're not going to recap that this morning. If you need to, you can go back to last week and get the details specifically that we discussed. But how we as a society tolerate all sorts of wickedness as long as we can get the approval of the majority is essentially how we operate as a country. Jeremiah warned and warned, but the call to repent was unheeded and avoided. Today we're going to continue in the first lament and finish it up by looking at these points here at the end of the chapter. Number one, feeling hopeless, verses 12 through 16. Number two, left abandoned, verses 17 through 19. And number three, desiring retribution, verses 20 through 22. Let's start with number one, feeling hopeless, verses 12 through 16. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of His fierce anger. From above He has sent fire into my bones, and it overpowered them. He has spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions was bound. They were woven together by His hands and thrust upon my neck. He made my strength fail. The Lord delivered me into the hand of those whom I am not able to withstand. The Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord trampled as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eye, my eye overflows with water because the Comforter who should restore my life is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. You see, the prophet Jeremiah here in his musings and lament asks the piercing question, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Does it mean anything to anyone what we're going through? 
I dare say when tragedy just struck this last week, that this question is probably asked by some of the parents. People are out to score political points, trying to outdo the other in caring, but missing the grief that people are going through. Does this mean anything to you while you're looking at all of this destruction? That's essentially what this prophet's saying. What a place to feel utterly hopeless because it feels like no one really cares. The utter despair of a city which realizes they just received the fierce anger, wrath of God. This is an anger to his people. The people he called to himself. The people of Israel. Which begs the question, how does God's anger manifest itself in the lives of people? You see, most people want only to talk about God's love. But when it comes to God's anger, it's a topic utterly avoided by most churches today. I want you to ask yourself if this is something that God could say to those that could profess to be Christians living in America today. Now looking back in Jeremiah chapter 4, we find these words. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 22 through 26. Here's what it says. See if it sounds like something God could say to us as a nation that considers itself a Christian nation. For my people are foolish. They have not known me. They are silly children, and they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. In the heavens they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by His fierce anger." How many that say that there are Christians are the very ones who know just how to sanitize their sin before God by pretending they don't do what they really do in offense to Him? When arguing for their sinful lifestyle, we bring up a 60s version of Jesus that's promulgated in Jesus Christ Superstar. An accepting, loving Jesus that accepts anything we offer, contrary to everything Scripture preaches. In fact, when people remember the woman caught in adultery, they tend to forget the go and sin no more part in that story. By saying only God can judge, many in Christendom do not realize the danger they are really in. You see, God's judgment of Israel was evident in that a beautiful city that once had everything going for it was now turned to rubble and the plenty now left empty. 
You see, back in Lamentations chapter 1, Israel's sins are described as a yoke around their neck, which broke down their strength in verse 14. That's not particularly a reference to the chastening of God, but rather the yoke is of Jerusalem's transgressions. If you go back and stay in Jeremiah chapter 5, you'll see that verses 20 through 31, you read the following. And I find that it's best put in the ESV. Jeremiah 5, 20 through 31. Here's how God describes what they have done. Declare this in the house of Jacob. Proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord. Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the, appointed, the weeks appointed for the harvest. Listen to this next part. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have kept good from you. For wicked men are found among my people, they lurk like fowlers, lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage of, full of birds. Their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in the deeds of evil. They judge not with justice. The cause of the fatherless to make it prosper and they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. Well, what will you do when the end comes? When a nation thinks that freedom is found in rejecting the law of God, they don't realize the bondage they've really signed up for. You see, every time a nation thinks that I'm freeing myself from God's law, they don't realize that they are now being entrapped and choked by sin. Being free to sin is not real freedom, church. As sin keeps good or blessing from us, as this text says. That sin keeps good and blessing from our nation. We sing songs like, God bless America, right? Why should He? Because we honor His Word? Is that why he needs to bless us? Because we just demand it? We have our rights, God. 
There's nothing more hypocritical than when people sing that song with no inclination to the Word of God. Demanding from God what He is not going to give. Sin keeps good or blessing from us. We need to remember that, church. Just as it kept good and blessing from the nation of Israel. It should be clear that we've sinned as a people to see what's happened to the state of this world. Everybody's quick to blame everybody else for why the world is going in the direction that it is. I want to give you a clear-cut answer on this. Because of sin, the world is going this way. Because the people of God are not living the things of God. It should be clear that we've sinned as people when we see what's happened to this world. Our relationship with others. Our desire to be free from the demands of Scripture has only enslaved us further. How many today are more addicted by the things that they ought not be than they were in generations past? In a nation that should be progressing, we're regressing in quite a few areas. Just pause for a moment and look back historically. When we founded this nation, when the Founding Fathers founded this nation, a lot of the things that we're arguing about right now were not argued about. The Second Amendment was not much of a debate back then, particularly once it was established. School shootings were not a thing back then because the students were actually taught how to take apart weapons, the safety required, the importance of making sure you're safe. What's changed? More freedom? More sin? More approval of sin? More promoting of sin? No fathers in the home. That's what's changed. You see, the paradox is True freedom is found in being a slave to Christ. That's where true freedom is found. True freedom is found in being a slave to Christ. Which is why, just as in Israel's time, so in our time, we constantly need people to tell us we're doing just fine. Right? Oh, you're doing just fine. You are perfect just the way you are. And what's even more disgusting is when so-called Bible preachers and teachers tell their people who are living in sin that they are just fine. You're perfectly fine to live in that sin. Just as they had priests that ruled at their preferences, so do we in our churches today. We're throwing that pastor out if he starts talking about this sin that we don't like. We don't want to hear about this place called hell. Pastor, just tell us how God has a wonderful plan for our life. That's the only sermon we want to hear. How much lying do pastors have to do today in our culture? Every pastor that says God has a wonderful plan for their life doesn't know the destiny of every person they say that to. 
And I ask myself many times, what part of Scripture have you read to give you that? Obviously, we have Romans 8, that all things work together for good. But you also have plenty of texts that tell you there's doom for those that disregard God's Word. But we love people telling us we're good the way we are. Israel loved it like that. We do as well. The unfortunate reality is just as they refuse to take seriously the consequences of sin, we do the same ourselves. Which is why, let's be honest, it's always someone else's fault in our society, right? If it's not my fault, it's my spouse's fault. If it's not my spouse's fault, it's the boss's fault. If it's not my boss's fault, it's the neighbor's fault. If it's not them, it's the president. There's always someone else to blame for the direction of this nation. It's not my fault. It can't be my fault. That's not to say the struggles aren't real and that there aren't poor choices that people over us may make. But we sure do have plenty of blame to go around all the time, don't we? Maybe all of these happenings around us right now are to be a wake-up call for us as a church. And to examine ourselves and see if we've made things right with God. Maybe that's why we feel so hopeless. We're constantly trying to pump ourselves up with falsehood. You ever try to avoid a problem that you know you have to take care of? Anybody ever do that? Like, it's unavoidable. You have to deal with it. You know you have to deal with it. And you keep pushing it off. Try to pretend it's not there. And what ends up happening if you avoid it long enough? Does it get better? Oh, no, absolutely not. It devastates you. Your anxiety goes through the roof, right? The smallest things that someone say reminding you of that thing you need to take care of, it triggers you. I mean, you're just ready to snap. Maybe that's why we feel so hopeless. We're constantly trying to tell ourselves lies and pretending that God is okay with sin in our lives. Usually when feeling hopeless, we also feel alone and abandoned. Number two, left abandoned, verses 17 through 19. Zion spreads out her hands, but no one comforts her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that those around him become his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. The Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against His commandment. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders breathed their last in the city while they sought food to restore their life. Jerusalem is now yearning for help and comfort, but is rejected by those that were considered her friends or lovers, if you will. Jerusalem was proud and boastful. 
But when judgment finally came, there was nothing to boast about. Only devastation. And when judgment came, there was no one there to comfort. It seemed like even God was not available. In fact, as we read last week, Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and parents, I want you to put yourself in his shoes for just a moment. You've been given the opportunity to repent. You know that Babylon is knocking at the door of Jerusalem. They're going to break through. And you refuse to believe that you won't win at the end. Babylon breaks through. And your own two sons are killed right in front of you. They're holding you down while they kill your, and execute your two sons. You want to tell me that wouldn't devastate you? Let's add another thing to that. After you see these things happen in front of you, they take out your own eyes. You can't see anything now. All you can do is see the flashbacks of what you just saw. These are things that are uncomfortable to talk about today. Because no one wants to offend. But our children many times suffer the consequences for our rebellion against God. Albeit sometimes because they follow in our footsteps and live as we do. You see, Zedekiah had a chance to repent as the Babylonians were gathered around Jerusalem, besieging it for over two years before successfully breaking through. But due to his rebellion against God, Zedekiah was forced to watch his sons executed in front of him with others in leadership, only to have his own eyes gouged out. See, we need to be careful assuming that a certain government policy will stop the next shooting as a country. It goes deeper than that. You can take a crossbow, you can take a gun, you can take a car, you can kill people many different ways. And no legislation, apart from the Word of God, can take care of the condition of the heart. Which is why Scripture is there to actually prove we need the grace of God. Because we fight against laws by default including those of us that are the most obedient to the laws that we claim to follow. You see, it doesn't matter what political party we ascribe to. Whoever we want to blame, we need to look at the mirror of God's Word and see what it is that God's trying to show us, even with what has experienced this last week. How many events do you see in the world that you go as a Christian? How does this pertain to what I'm reading in the Word right now? God, tell me what I need to do. Unfortunately, what many Christians' first response is, blame the president, blame that political party. God is trying to get your attention. And you're ignoring it. You're willing to go blame everybody else before trying to learn what it is that he's trying to tell you. Now, there's a time and place for those discussions on what we could do better as a nation. 
not disregarding any of that. But if the condition of the heart is not what's addressed, then all the other symptoms don't matter. Maybe we need to pause and realize that God's trying to show us something just as He showed the prophet Jeremiah when He has this sense of isolation which, which comes from walking away from God. You see, many of us, when we're, we're feeling isolated from others, even isolated from God, what we don't want to do is do the honest analysis to think what it is that I'm contributing to that's bringing me to this point of isolation. Which is why, by default, many of us blame everybody else for why we're isolated. You ever find yourself do that? It's their fault that I'm feeling isolated. It's always someone else. But what's even more stunning is what happened in Israel may very well be the thing that still keeps happening today. Where they had priests and leaders of the city who were left only looking out for themselves. Not really for the people. But they ended up starving to death. The very thing that they thought they were going to be protected from took them down. The very ones you would think would be safe, it came for them as well. Listen to what Jeremiah 14, 13 through 16 says. Then I said... Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. What a wonderful prophecy, right? It's going to go well. You're going to prosper. What a promise. Tell me more, preacher, about how wonderful I am. How good my life is going to be. It doesn't stop there. Verse 14, and the Lord said to me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. You mean to tell me? These people speaking on the behalf of God were telling people lies? Doesn't stop there. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, whom I did not send, and who say sword and famine shall not be in this land. Listen to what he says next. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. The very thing you tell people that will not destroy them will destroy you. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. They will have no one to bury them. Them nor their wives, their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness on them. You want your sin? You're going to have it. Because all the consequences of your sin are now going to be on you. These false prophets were convincing the people that everything's going to be okay. God is for you. 
You're His chosen people. He would dare not do what Jeremiah says is going to happen. They were not telling the truth then, as many do not tell the truth now. Any minister of the gospel that does not call the people of God to turn from sin and tells a wandering sheep they're fine walking near the edge of the cliff is endangering that flock. So many pastors are trying to spread messages of positivity without calling any of God's people to turn from their wickedness. Believer, you have grace. Absolutely. But that grace is not to be abused. And unfortunately, many churches teach their people to abuse the grace of God. As one preacher put it, you need to use the grace of God, not abuse the grace of God. You see, God's judgment is very severe for people that claim to speak for Him and are only telling partial truths and flat-out lies. God is not for us living in rebellion against Him. And He will never be for it. Is He long-suffering? Oh, yes, He is. He was very long-suffering to Israel even back then. We're just seeing the end result of all of that. But he is not for rebellion. We should not expect any blessings if we flat out refuse to turn from our wickedness. Don't expect blessings from God if you don't care to do what God says. That would be the equivalent of you asking your boss for a raise and you didn't show up three times this week and you were late every day. In the real world, you wouldn't even expect to ask that. But Christians demand things from God he'll never give them. Which is why the righteous judgment of God is to be feared more so than anything man can come up with. God's judgment can come in this life and the next. Feeling abandoned, Jerusalem gets to a place so many of us do. We've got nothing left. There's a desire for vengeance or retribution on our behalf. Number three, desiring retribution. Verses 20 through 22. See, O Lord, that I am in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves, at home it is like death. They have heard that I sigh, but no one comforts me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Bring on the day you have announced, that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you. And do to them as you have done to me for all my transgressions. For my sighs are many, and my heart is faint. As the city lies in ruins, and there's a sense of hopelessness here, it gets to a point 
where Jerusalem wants God to now honor them and defend them and take vengeance on those that have done these things to them, all while acknowledging that God sent them due to judgment. It hurts to know that others don't care. It hurts to know that you're alone and abandoned. It all feels so hopeless. But many times when we're in suffering, what we end up doing is what Jerusalem does here. We want others to suffer what we've gone through. We do this in very subtle ways, don't we? We've made a poor decision in our relationships. We're thrilled when others are struggling like we are. We have money problems. We're glad to hear others are struggling just as we are. So many of us want many of the difficult things in our lives that are a result of our sin to be the consequences of sin in other people's lives. Let me pause for a moment and make a statement that I don't think many of us understand. When God deals with us on our sin, He is not asking you as the referee on what you think you deserve compared to somebody else. In fact, God deals with you and I differently. And for some, it may be a more severe chastisement than others. And you need to understand that God takes everything into account when it comes to our sanctification. What it's going to take to bring that person closer to Him. For some, it may be a small little nudge. For others of us that are stubborn as the nation of Israel... Smack right into the wall. It's the only thing that wakes us up. You see, so many of us, unfortunately, don't understand that when it comes to God's judgment and His timing, when it comes to the consequences of sin, or even the chastening of God when it comes to other believers, we don't get to determine any of that. And we can't demand from God that He deal with others the way He's dealt with us. Which is why some may indulge in a certain sin and face more severe consequences than others. And we need to understand that God knows what He's doing. One thing that many don't consider is the consequences of their sin sometimes are very much internal, not external. Some of us are just much better at hiding the fact that this sin has really consumed us on the inside. Which is why it hurts so much. And we tell everybody we're fine, we're good. How are you dealing with this after this happens? We're doing okay. You're crushed. It's eating you alive. Sometimes the consequences are more internal than external, which is why so many of us hide those consequences to give others the impression that our sin didn't really hurt us as bad as it really did. You see, the other nations were thrilled that Jerusalem just went down. Jerusalem now wants them to pay for their sins as well. And God's not done dealing with Jerusalem yet. This process just started. The question I have for you 
as you look at the prophet and what he's doing here is just as a nation of Israel, we become very, very self-centered and think that we're the only ones going through things, the only ones that have been devastated by the chastening of God, the judgment of God. But the question is, do we care for others? Do we care for others? And I'm talking a genuine care, not just a posted something on my Facebook and I'm done. I'm talking a genuine care for others. You see, there's a lot of phonies out there pretending they really care for the broken while only taking advantage of them. I have a certain group of people that always come to mind when I think of this. Oh, they know how to talk the talk. The truth is, do we care for others? You see, we should care for others when they're struggling, even when it's due to the consequence of their sin. Nowhere in Scripture does God say automatically, if someone's struggling due to the consequence of their sin, you just leave them alone, let it play out. No, you're to help restore a person. You're to try to help them back up. Knowing full well that you could do the very same thing that they've done and suffer the same consequences they have. Now listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12. And I love how the New Living Translation puts it. This actually could be a standalone sermon in and of itself, but this is our conclusion for today. Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. If I didn't preach the rest of the sermon, I just read this for you. There's plenty for you to apply. Okay? Romans 12, 9 through 21. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. And take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord. What's the next word? Enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble. And keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are, an honor, you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, speaking to what Jerusalem finished with here, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the Scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. So, if we're not supposed to do that, what are we supposed to do? Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you. But conquer evil by doing good. 
lots in just that text. You see, so many things that Paul gets into in this text, we constantly miss. None of the least of which is genuinely love people. Genuinely love people. You mean people fraudulently love people? Yes. God expects a genuine love for others. And that means addressing the things that need to be addressed in people's lives as well. Which is why you should care for the things of God. Be there in their highs and lows. You see, most of us always want people to be there in our lows. But let me ask you a question. I don't know if you've ever looked at this text the way I just did this last week. Are you there for people in their highs? Are you excited when people are actually going through seasons of success and blessing from God in their lives? Or do you envy and go, oh my goodness, why would God bless them like that? They don't deserve it. Many of us want people in our low points, but are we there for others in their high points? We don't spend time with ordinary people as this text says, because sometimes we think we're just too good for them. We know more than they do. Living at peace with others should be what we strive for as Christians, and let God alone take care of the retribution. God will vindicate His name. You don't have to worry about that. Let's be a people of God that generally care for others. And that means telling others the truth while also helping in their needs, whether they're physical, emotional, or spiritual. May our hatred for sin reach out in our care for the sinner who is bound by it. Which is why the gospel message is to be shared indiscriminately to every person that we come in contact with. Because we ought to care enough with a genuine love for them to share with them the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help us, God. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this reminder once again from the prophet Jeremiah of the sense of hopelessness and pain and abandonment the sense of desiring re revenge and retribution for what had happened to Jerusalem. And Father, as we've read the words of the Apostle Paul in closing, Father, we ask that you give us a genuine love for others. That we wouldn't be frauds looking at everyone else and claiming that they're the frauds. But that you would plant deep within us a spirit of love that comes from Christ. That cares so much what people are going through. That we pray for them even when we're on opposite sides of the debate. And Father, as we prayed earlier, we ask for your care and love for the families that were affected by this shooting this last week. We ask, Father, that we would be faithful to pray for one another here in this church to love our community, to care for our students in the school, and most of all, to make Christ known to all. We ask this all in his name. Amen.
Please stand with us.